Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for attending. And now, without further ado, to answer your questions, we welcome Commissioner Carl Benson. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for attending today's press conference. Uh, at a time when there are so many uncertainties facing intercollegiate athletics, I thought that this would be a good opportunity to address some of those issues. Uh, who's got the first question? I got a question. Uh, Trent Krim from the Independent. <laughs> really? Trent Krim from the Independent? Are you kidding me? What's your question? Well, well what makes you qualified to be a commissioner? And alive. That's the best that you can have at a time when, when we've got all these issues facing us, and that's the best question you have? That's the stupidest question I've ever heard. And really... Who let this guy in? Many of us are turned off by the idea of politicians getting involved in governing of sports, both at the college and professional levels. Remember, name, image, and likeness laws were enacted by politicians in numerous states who barreled forward without any sort of collective thoughts or plans on how to regulate what would come next. Still, there are some who believe that it'll take an act of Congress for the NCAA to get its arms around NIL, as well as anything designed to regulate the transfer portal and maybe even escalating coaches' salaries. Putting that toothpaste back in the tube? This week on Knutson and the Commission, Carl and I talk with the president and CEO of Lead One, an organization that gives a collective voice to D1 athletic directors. He's Tom McMillan, who also happens to be a former college basketball superstar, an Olympian, an NBA veteran, and oh, by the way, a Rhodes Scholar and a former member of the United States House of Representatives. This is a man with a world of experience, and he's here to share his views on what comes next for college sports. Tremendous insight and some words of warning. That's next, right here on Knutson and the Commish. Stay with us. For the best selection of autographs and memorabilia from your favorite sports stars past and present, look no further than denverautographs.com. Find what you're after on the web or at either of their two Metro Denver locations, Colorado Mills Mall and Flatirons Mall. Broncos, Rockies, Avs, Nuggets, and much more. It's all at denverautographs.com. Learning life skills through baseball, USA Prime is more than just travel baseball. We mentor young athletes in areas like teamwork and skill development. It's about more than winning weekend tournaments. It's about showing young players how to achieve their goals in baseball and beyond. Contact Scott Horman at Colorado at gmail.com for more information. Oh, you know my stance. I've always been of the belief that uh, when politicians get involved in sports, either professionally or at the college level, nothing good comes of that. It's just you've seen too many examples of that just mucking things up. But if there's one person that might be able to change my opinion on that, that might be able to sway me in the other direction, it's the guy you brought in as a, as a guest this week, and we are really honored to have him. Well, thanks, Mark. And uh, we've had some great guests over the past several months, but you know, none bigger, literally <laughs> and figuratively, than uh, today as we welcome Tom McMillan to the show. Tom and I both graduated from high school in 1970. He, however, was the nation's Mr. Basketball coming out of high school that spring in Pennsylvania and was on the cover of Sports Illustrated 50 years ago this month. Tom turned down Dean Smith in North Carolina to play at the University of Maryland, was a member of the famous 1972 U.S. Olympic team that got robbed by the Russian referees in the gold medal game in Munich. He was a first-round draft choice of the then Buffalo Braves in 1974, only to delay his NBA career to attend Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar. Mark, this guy is big. He is yeah, bigger no than kidding. Life. 11-year NBA, 11-year NBA career, and then three terms in Congress from 1987 to 1993, where he set the bar very high as yes. the tallest person in the history <laughs> of both right. the House and the Senate. Writer, entrepreneur, member of the Knight Commission, and finally, since 2015, the CEO of the organization, previously known as the Division I-A Athletic Directors Association, now called Lead One where he provides counsel and advice to the 132 FBS athletic directors. 
who at this critical time in intercollegiate athletics certainly need his help to navigate all the issues before them. So now, Mark, welcome, Tom. Thanks for working us into your schedule. And now, Mark, you can find out whether he can convince you whether those, those former colleagues of his on the Hill have all the answers. Well, I will tell you this. When Tom Osborne spent a brief tenure in Congress, he told me afterwards there was the worst time of his life. The worst. He hated it, couldn't get anything done, just couldn't stand it, was happy to get out of there, so on and so forth. So I guess I'm a little bit jaded when I when it comes to those sort of things, Tom. But obviously, um, you had a distinguished career, not only in politics, but in sports. So my first question is, why aren't you running the NCAA right now? That's a very uh, good question. Uh, first of all, I've never been asked. Secondly, um, well, there's the first mistake. And the second thing is that, uh, you know, I'm not sure it is runnable these days. Yeah. With all the so forth. So uh, it's like, um, you know, it's like being president of the United States during the Articles of Confederation. It'd been a pretty, mm-hmm. we didn't have president then, but yeah. it would have been pretty pretty poor to be in charge of an organization when all the power is going out to the conferences. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, Carl and I've spent a lot of time on this, on, on this podcast, talking about the problems starting with NIL, which I can't stand the transfer portal, which I can't stand. I don't get off my lawn. I know, but um, <laughs> help, help us get our arms around all this. And you just said it's unenforceable. And, and that doesn't that go back to the fact that the NCAA basically advocated their, their leadership role in, in, in all these changes. And now it's the wild West and there's no rules. Well, I'm not sure they had a lot of choice. I mean, the lawyers, I mean, their legal bills were just going out of the roof and it was, and it was, as, as Carl knows, trickling down to the conferences. And, uh, you know, it's not a very good way to run a railroad. I might add running it, you know, decentralizing it down. Uh, you know, we went, college sports went through this exercise back in the thirties when they, you know, they allowed each school to decide what kind of uh, deal they're going to do with their student athletes. And hmm. finally, it got so chaotic that they had to pass this sanity code in the 40s where they set up sort of national rules and national enforcement. Hmm. And, you know, I can foresee this happening once again. The only way it's going to, you're going to have a central authority involved here is if. Congress gives them some protection from the lawsuits. That's not going to happen for a long time unless this thing gets really messy, and it, which which it very could, very well could. I mean, you know, when you have thirty-two conferences and all the rest doing their own thing, it's pretty hard to run a national sports enterprise. Tom, you mentioned that uh, you know that that the NCA didn't have much choice uh, due to the lawyers and the, the the various plaintiff lawsuits that were out there. You know, the NCAA, and I was an NCAA staff member. I, I worked under the umbrella of the NCAA. I, I believe strongly that that there's been too much of a blanket pointing the finger and blaming blaming the NCAA. But, you know, it does seem from time to time that they can't get, you know, out of the way of themselves. And I remember distinctly seven, eight, nine years ago, big press release. And at the end of the fiscal year, Mark Emmert announces that the NCA has a surplus of $900 million. And it just seemed ironic that all of a sudden the lawsuit started coming when, when it became public information that the NCAA had deep, 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 deep pockets. They've lost, they've lost a significant amount of that in the last several years over settlements. 
how much longer can the NCAA be that that bottomless uh, you know revenue stream for the plaintiff lawyers? Well, I, I think that they're by devolving this authority, they're going to get out of the way of a lot of the lawsuits. But let me tell you a story. Thirty years ago, we'll go back in time. We had a hearing in a committee I was on in Congress about college sports, and we had Dick Schultz, head of the NCAA, there. And we were talking about the first college coach making a million dollars. And at the time I said, you know, if we don't slow that down, we're going to have a million dollar player soon enough. Well, it's taken about 30 years, but we're going to, we're going to have million dollar players out there through NIL and mm-hmm. potentially. And, down and 10 and $10 million coaches though. And $10 million coaches. And the problem is there was a moment in time when there was a tremendous furor. Uh, in the press and the public about these college athletes were just going through the motions. They weren't getting education. They couldn't even read and write. And there was a, in the NCAA, although they were getting pounded on, it wasn't as bad as it is today. And I thought there might've been an opportunity there to do a grand compromise, get costs under control, but start doing more for the student athlete, even back then making sure that, you know, the primacy of their getting a, an education was preserved and all that. But that was, that was a rare moment. And then what's happened over time is that the NCAA has lost more and more, you know, favorability in the public and in the members, in the members of Congress eyes. And so now for them to get anything done, it's nearly impossible. And so that's an evolution. Could this have taken a different turn? The only way it could have taken a different turn was if you could have stopped the fact that coaches are making $10 million a year today was inevitable that the players were going to demand a piece of the pie. And that's, and that's where we are today. And, uh, but I don't think you're going to reverse that anytime soon. You had a chance to do it years ago, but that's the way history's written. You made a comment back in, in those days, Tom, that, uh, that a salary cap, could have been established as long as there had been a an additional at the same time some uh, revised quote compensation back to the student athletes oh that's, i mean you don't even need, you don't even need to go to the to the congress for to, to 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 curb salary controls all you need to do is get the conferences the cfp and the ncaa to get together and say okay we got 3.6 billion of revenue we give out a year and we're going to put some rules through the road here. We're getting to put incentives just like the NFL and the NBA. They say, you want to pay a coach 10 million? What's going to cost you 30 million in distributions. You have the ability through the power of the purse to control college sports. You've always had that. Even judge Wilkins said that Uh, once you, if you control the money, you can incent or disincent any behavior you want. Now, some people may decide they're going to pay Lusabin ten million because he's worth it, but it's still because it's going to cost you know Alabama multiples of that. It would be a, it would be a slowdown on the system. Right now, there are no slowdowns on the system, and you know when you have five hundred million dollars of buyouts, contract buyouts for coaches that aren't coaching, you know it's just a it's a tough situation and. The, the bad part about it, I think it's just inevitably led to players saying we deserve a piece of it. And that's where the public is. Um, I know socialism is a dirty word in this country in a lot of ways, uh, but even though it's prevalent in a lot of way business is done, 
Um, when I was playing Major League Baseball, we we shared marketing revenue with the owners. Yeah. Uh, 50, 50 split. And each player got a check at the end of the year. If you had a box of milk duds with that logo on it and it sold in half of those proceeds went, ended up going to the players, which distribute. Mm -hmm. I've always thought along the lines of a stipend, they could have done that back to when the Johnny Manziel thing was big, you know, they were selling Johnny Manziel jerseys. Nobody's going to cut. I don't know how it was ever going to be possible for Johnny Manziel to get paid for that Jersey sale, but not someone else who wore number two at Texas A&M or not even the lacrosse athletes or the field hockey athletes or whatever. But if you shared marketing revenue with the players and added that to their stipend with all the athletes, excuse me, and added that to their stipend, wouldn't that have curbed some of this need for NIL? Well, I think that's kind of where we're heading. I think we're, I, I think that, I think the, the push towards employment is very slippery slope Yes, because, they're employed they can be fired you're going to lose your fans you're going to lose your charitable donations taxes and so forth. pay taxes letting them share letting them share in what i call uber licensing or uber right. nil right. makes a lot of sense and that may even include some media uh yeah. and then you have to figure out how you're going to do it so that it's compliant with title nine you know the right. nfl exactly. does it the way the nfl does it is they nfl player association Tom Brady gets the same license right. check. Exactly. The guy. But yep. in this case, you're going to have to get take care, make sure that Title IX is protected. Right. So, you know, women athletes may get a piece of that pie as yes, well. As so they should. There could be there could be ways to navigate this through what I call Uber NIL. Which brings us back to the whole idea, my, my premise that from the Roger Clemens on Capitol Hill to, you know, whatever the politicians who forced through NIL stuff before the NCAA was ready, that it just hasn't been a good work, hasn't worked well for Congress to get involved in, in this, these kind of things. But you're saying it's almost going to have to, and we're going to have to keep our, keep our fingers crossed that whichever Congress does it, does it right. Well, not necessarily. As I said, the powers to be, the, the power of the purse in college sports gives them a lot of flexibility if you could, if you had the will to do it. Yeah. But, you know, here's what I would say. There have been some good things that have come out of our political system. Let me give you an example. In 1991, Bill Bradley and I passed the bill that required graduation rates to be disclosed. The NCAA didn't want that to, to happen. Yeah. But now, you know, a kid goes to school, he can see whether the school is graduating, the, graduating their student athletes. And you know what? That isn't so bad. No. Uh, and. Even Title IX, a lot of people, obviously, uh, Title IX has been re very revolutionary uh, in, in uh, college sports. That wouldn't have happened without Richard Nixon and, uh, and the, the, the administration back in, in 72. So, you know, government, government can play a role. Uh, the government uh, restructured the Olympics back in the, in, the, um, in the 70s in the United States. So they, they've done some things. But normally, this is a very complicated problem, and I don't see the government getting involved in this hmm. unless this gets really, really hairy. And even though people think it's real hairy right now, it, you know, when I talk about hairy, I'm talking yeah. about gambling yep. scandals. I'm talking yep. about our higher ed universities being whipsawed by all this. I'm talking yep. about uh, real, real problems that uh, we're nowhere near. Uh, near. Yeah, I mean, and so. That's these, the only way I think Congress these kids are just learning. Ron Hunter pointed out to us last week. These kids are just learning. They're going to have to pay taxes on these NIL deals. They got they yep. hadn't even thought about that to this point. So you're right. There's a lot yet to come in this regard. Yeah. So, yeah. And Tom, uh, when you, when you took your current position back in 2015, 
and you'd had a, a long-standing interest from the Knight Commission to your own mm -hmm. book that you that you wrote, trying to forecast you know the future of of intercollegiate athletics. In 2015, did you anticipate that we'd be where we are today, or did this surprise you? No, absolutely. As a matter of fact. You know, one of the reasons I was interested in Jack Swarbrick, one of the reasons why I, I think that he wanted me to do it was, and the reason why we started having our meetings in Washington is because we told our members back in 15, this stuff's all going to come to Washington. And the most important thing they could do is get to know their member of Congress and educate them. I mean, here we have five, six years that they should be educating it. A few did that. Many have not. And, you know, uh, as they once said, politics is too serious a business to leave to the politicians. That's why you have to educate them. And so we had our meetings in Washington. We tried to get people involved. But, you know, eventually, uh, you know, Congress is going to be involved in these issues because we spend billions of dollars in higher ed in America. And, uh, you know, college sports is a big deal. And uh, the fact whether they get something done is going to be the real question. In, in our partisan world that we live in right now, it's extremely difficult to get anything done through Congress. But yes, to answer your question, we, we saw this day coming. It was inevitable that student athletes, the push towards full employment rights, given the amount of salaries on the other side, was going to, was going to hit us in the face. And it is, and that's what we're dealing with. Hey, Tom, um... But a large amount of your work is done on behalf of the Power Five conferences. Do you anticipate a breakoff here, a Division Four or whatever you call it, with the Power Five conferences leave the, the umbrella of the NCAA and form their own entity because of what you've talked about, because of the need to regulate yourself, and it's just too ungangly the way it is? Well, I would say, first of all, we work just as closely with our group of five schools as we do the Power Five. And, they, and you know, the funny thing about it, I do think that there's more in common than difference even though there is a lot that is very different amongst those schools. But, you know, you think about it, schools breaking off. You talk about, okay, how many schools really make money in college sports? Only a handful. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to break off. I mean, what are you going to be more commercial? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you're going to have the IRS taxing you like a mm -hmm. business. Are yep. you just going to be just go just become just, a minor league? Yeah. No. Are you going to turn into a, a yep. pro, professional, pro, semi pro? Or pro yep. I mean, will some schools think about doing that possibly but you know you're only going to have a handful who are they going to play i mean mm -hmm. you got to have uh, this great ecosystem of college sports for teams to play each other so i think it's an uh, it's an uh, you know it's an uh, untidy marriage but i don't see it breaking up however however you you listen and you read each week you know and, and i know that the journalists and the media members you know think they have a pulse on it and they and they claim that they you know, talk to this AD and they talk to this other AD and, and they feel this groundswell that, uh, that it's inevitable that there isn't going to be some, you know, change in the, in the overall, you know, infrastructure of, of division one. And I mean, even the night commission that, you know, that you served on, you know, recommended some type of a, of a separation yeah. to allow football to govern itself, to, to create its own entity, and to, to just take football out of the equation and let the other sports within Division I continue 
you know, kind of status quo. Is is that a solution? College sports is very fragmented from a governance standpoint. I mean, the fact that you have a separate football championship and that you have the NCAA, you know, if I were the NCAA, it's like it's a, it's a it's a classic situation where they get no revenue from football, yet they get all the headaches. They gotta yep. have all the eligibility, yep. enforcement, all that. I mean, one day the NCAA can say, "Look, guys, we're out of this business. Yeah. We're gonna spin that off. Good luck. We'll supervise everything else. And if you want us to stay in the business, you're gonna have to pay us for it." I don't know. As the NCAA changes over the next few years this stuff's going to get thrown to the conferences. And, you know, you talk about division one, well, division one is 96% of the revenue of the NCAA. So, but then you break it down and you're going to see that individual conferences are going to be making very autonomous decisions. And some of them may go as far as totally against where this NCAA constitutional convention, uh, constitutional document was last week. You know, the constitutional document says we're not going to have pay for play. We're not going to have a recruiting adjustments and all that. But the fact of the matter is pay for play in some of these collectives and NIL deals, we're very yeah. close to it right oh, now. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. Are. I thought the constitution was almost irrelevant the day it was passed. It should have been written in a much more broader framework, allowing for some flexibility. Because I think that one well, the thing that's going to be most, and, and Carl, you know this better than anyone, is what are the conferences going to do? Mm-hmm. I mean, they all have hiring lobbyists. They have all this infrastructure. They have general counsel. They have lawyers. They're going to say, okay, we don't have market power. We can pretty much do what we want according to, you know, the latitude the Supreme Court is giving us. You know, let's let's push the push the envelope. I'm not sure where the NCAA plays in that with a constitution that may not be applicable for the changes in the future. The whole pay-for-play concept. I mean, just think of the BYU deal for a minute. Yep. You're a BYU you're a player, you come on the team, and you get your tuition, a walk-on. Uh, obviously, that's connected to playing. Is that pay-for-play, or does that need to be better defined? Listen, yeah. I'm happy for those kids. Those walk-ons, they needed it. But don't you think we need to define that in a different way? Yes. And, and, and if the NCAA doth <laughs> protest too much, doesn't it risk the, the, their whole amateurism argument going down the toilet? So they've got, they're in a very rock and a hard place here. You, know, you mentioned um, incentivizing. I'm a high school coach, so I get all the updates from the National Federation of High Schools. And one of the first things when NIL came forward was they, they were like, oh, no, we can't have this being used as a recruiting enticement. We can't have agents and boosters on campuses and blah, blah, blah. And then you look at, at the NCAA version of it, and they say, yeah, you can't do that. But then they said they can't stop you from doing that. There's no limits on it. So, I mean, basically the high school federation and people like that were helpless, right? Boosters can do whatever they want to do now. If, as long as you're not attached, affiliated with the school, you can go. Billy Joe Bob's car lot can give a quarterback a car if they want, which we've already seen happen, to go to certain schools. And if that's not a recruiting enticement, what is? Well, and to go further than that, conferences conferences could set up big collectives. They could put uh, revenue sharing down there for the all the players. They could go yep, in. I agree. It could be media. It could be apparel. Yep. It could be collectibles. It could be sneakers. And then they could figure out some distribution right. formula you know, that works for Title IX and everything. Yep. So these whole collectives which are sort of removed from the institution or the conference, 
I, I think are going to continue to grow. Uh, and the and the real question I think you're getting at: What role does the NCAA? We know what their role is in eligibility. We know what they do with championships. Uh, what's their role in enforcement? I mean, who knows? Yeah. What's that going to look like uh, down yep. the road? And so I think this work that the D1 Transformation Group has to do is very significant. And if I were on that committee and I was a conference, I would want as much autonomy as possible. And I think that's the world. I think that's the world we're heading towards. And I think it's a world that is very uh, is going to be one of those things that we can look back 20, 10 years from now and say, did it work or did it not work? Did it lead to more chaos? Did it lead to, you know, just a very uneven playing field, much more, uh, much more uneven than it is today. And will that create, I mean, if you're a small school and just going to, I mean, you have no chance. Does that change college sports a little bit? You know, is that, are the Cinderella's gone? Do, do, does that whole uh, sort of what, what a word, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the fact that you kind of, level things off you try to create the competitive the competitive balance that yeah. uh you know yeah. that, that, that the ncaa has intentionally tried to to do yeah. with with rules whether it's whether it's uh number of scholarships whether it's the number of coaches on the field whether and, and all those restrictions that you know have gotten the ncaa in trouble uh in the past in terms of of restricting whether it's restricting coaches or restricting student athletes now you know i know that that last week the 22 other conferences outside of the 10 conferences that, that you are affiliated with and the 132, those 22 conferences meet every late January, early February. Right. And they had their, they had their meetings last week and talking to a couple of my fellow former colleagues who are in that group of 22, they still, the two things that are the most important to them are to maintain the number of scholarships that are currently allotted and to retain the automatic qualification for not just the, the NCAA basketball tournament, but all those other sports, you know, that, that people don't realize that there's 32 automatics into the volleyball, into the baseball, into the soccer, into the, you know, all the way down the road. And those are the two most important things for That's those right. 22 other conferences. No, I understand that. And, you know, I could comment about that, you know, because now you're going to have a, a, a re, some really strong conferences, the SEC, the Big Ten, others. And it's really hard for those other 22 to compete. And there may need to be some consolidation. But even the NCAA admits that whole AQ thing needs to be revised so that if a conference does merge up and get larger, it shouldn't be disincentives because of having automatic burst to the, to the championship. So I agree with you on that. So we want to make sure that we uh, touch right. on kind of the latest, seems like every week uh, and Mark and I've always said that whether it's our show or, or just shows across the country, there is no lack of content when it comes to the, you know, the sure. what's happening this week in the field of intercollegiate athletics. And, and earlier this week, the, you know, the, the national college players association, that has been around for, a lot longer than people, right. you know, maybe realize, and the attempt for unionization. But it it appears that that this new charge against the NCAA, the Pac-12, and then strategically UCLA and USC, public and private, is bringing this issue of can student athletes unionize 
uh, on on individual campuses. Love to hear your thoughts on on that, Tom. Well, this is not the first time. You know, this happened during the Obama administration during the Northwestern case. So, yeah. you know, I do think that the National Labor Relations Board, first of all, they're very slow. And two is that, you know, these these cases very it's hard to, to get it all the way through the system and have success on it. And the problem is they get caught up in the politics of the era. For instance, you know, Obama, Obama under the Obama administration, you know, the regional director said there were student athletes and employees. The national said no. Uh, Trump takes over and then they blow they throw all that out there. So one of the problems you have is this <clears throat> is going to be a several year endeavor not going to happen overnight secondly you know if a republican does take over the white house it could just get thrown out immediately which is it gets back to the chaos point i made can you imagine uh the privates particularly having to be classified as uh, their student athletes as employees and then having that change six months later on, under a new administration i'm not so con i don't think the joint employer issue is as concerning, uh, you know, how they brought UCLA into it. Right. I think that's less likely because um, there's already been a several course cases, one in the uh, Ninth Circuit Court and the Seventh Circuit Court that has basically discarded that theory. But the fact of the matter is that this is a multi-front war. You got state legislators doing it. You got the National Labor Relations Board do it. You've got court cases in Pennsylvania and all that is pushing this employment wall and this employment thing. It's, it's not if, it's just when, when all this happens. And I think uh, the college sports community is going to have to grapple with it. The good news on the political front from college, from the people that are against employment is that if the Republicans uh, win the Congress going to be very hard. I mean, they may have the ability to overturn anything that might be uh, sort of deleterious to college sports. Remember, the Democrats in, in Congress most of all want employment rights and collective bargaining. Republicans want to basically status quo, maybe want a, pre, want a preemptive NIL bill. And there's really no compromise there. So depending on who controls the corridors of power, will be more likely to see which way this thing goes. So I think it's several years off, uh, but the college sports community needs to be proactive right now in figuring out how they're gonna revise the model in light of you know, the, 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 the economics in college sports today. And that, that's, that is a must. And it probably will be conference by conference that will do this. You know. Hey, Tom, we only really have time for one more question, but I have to ask you about the other end of the spectrum. I have to ask you about the Olympic sports, the non-revenue sports. Um, we see a trend towards, obviously, some of those got cut and COVID had a lot to do with that. But do you foresee a time where club sports become more prominent than non-revenue sports, where the players don't get scholarships anymore, don't even get partial scholarships anymore? They have to start paying their way. And, and we see the growth of club sports because schools just simply can't afford scholarships for baseball players and, and volleyball players anymore. And you can see need based on that. Yep. I think if you look at this at the national level, look what's happening at Winter Olympics yep. and our medal account and how poorly we're doing. Well, the difference between the Winter and the Summer Olympics, Summer Olympics is comprised mostly of college and former college athletes. But here's the point. Yeah. 
our United States Olympic effort will suffer year to year if we continue to cut the infrastructure at the college level. There's no question about it. And it's going to require sort of a national look at this. How, because, you know, the basketball and football players are saying, we make all the revenue, we deserve more yeah. of it. Yet our national interest is about having broad-based sports. Yep. We have to figure the answer to that. Um, because in the, if I were in Congress today, I'd be very concerned about our Olympic effort. Because, you know, in a world where there's greater hostility between Iran and the U.S. and the Soviet Union, I mean, in Russia and China, you know, having that, that strong Olympic effort is really important for your national mm. messaging. And colleges play a big role in that. And yeah. I just think we have to think this through because one of the casualties of all this will be those, those uh, less resource sports, the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it. I mean, Stanford cut 11 non-revenue yeah. sports after COVID. Yes, special circumstances, I get it. But I mean, some of their most successful was rowing and some of those things they were very, very good at speaks to what you're talking about, about those are the kids that go on and be on the Olympic team in those sports because they don't have pro leagues to go into. Absolutely. Uh, it makes all the sense in the world. And you obviously have the Olympic experience, understand the importance of that. Carl, got anything from us? No, I think, I think again, the, the, the topics and the, and the issues, they're, they're not going to go away. Nope. Um, I think the role, Tom, that, that you have an opportunity to play in, you, you seem like a, a voice of reason. Do you see that? I mean, do you and Mark Emmert, you know, visit at all? Do you guys share information? Yeah, um, I, I have. And, you know, I, um, I conveyed to him, you know, when 97% of our AD said they were very concerned about the arms race and where all this is heading and the professionalization of college sports. I mean, there are some of our schools that aren't that concerned. There are, I would say, the vast majority that are. But, you know, I, I don't know if, again, I think the real question that we will know in the next six months is whether the NCAA, what role, if any, will they have in these mm. things going forward? Just to give you an example, their government office in Washington, they used to have a number of people working there. They have one person now. They, so they've really scaled back. And the, and the action right now is at the conference level. And we're going to have to see how all that sorts out. And so it, the job, what we do, we used to work very close, and we still do work very close with NCAA. We may now have to work with, uh, you know, 10 conferences or th mm. all of our conferences a lot more closely because I think they're going to be in the uh, – they're going to have the, – they're going to be in the driver's seats, and that's going to be good and bad for them. He has a lot in common with Ben Simmons, who was traded today, by the way. They're both 6'11", both play <laughs> basketball. They're both player of the year. Other than I, that, Ben Simmons went to college for one semester. Tom's, Tom's a Rhodes Scholar. So he's got his anti-Ben Simmons. Tom, Tom, we really appreciate you joining us tonight. Thank, thank you. To be, I, I, you know, if I could be traded for James Harden, that wouldn't be so bad. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you very um, much. Thanks, thanks so much thanks, for guys. sharing thank the uh, insight. We, uh, I look forward to – I read about you all the time, and, and I think that any time that Tom McMillan is quoted, it's uh, – it's done with uh, a thought, very a lot, a lot of thoughtfulness. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom. Look forward to seeing you anytime. Appreciate okay. it very much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Hey, Carl, you got a thumbs up and thumbs down for us? You know, I do have a thumbs All up right. and thumbs down. So. Hang on. We'll be back right All after set. this. It's Knutson and the Commission. Stay with us. Carl's got his thumbs up and thumbs down right after this. For the best selection of autographs and memorabilia from your favorite sports stars, past and present, look no further than denverautographs.com. Find what you're after on the web 
or at either of their two Metro Denver locations, Colorado Mills Mall and Flatirons Mall, Broncos, Rockies, Avs, Nuggets, and much more. It's all at DenverAutographs.com. Learning life skills through baseball, USA Prime is more than just travel baseball. We mentor young athletes in areas like teamwork and skill development. It's about more than winning weekend tournaments. It's about showing young players how to achieve their goals in baseball and beyond. Contact Scott Horman at USAPrimeColorado at gmail.com for more information. Well, you mentioned the Olympics, and uh, today we turn to Beijing and the Winter Olympics for our thumbs down, and it goes to NBC reporter Todd Harris when he asked Michaela Schifrin the dumbest question I've ever heard after Michaela's DNF'd in her That's first the second, du- second That's dumbest, the second, dumbest question. No, the second dumbest question. You got to ask the first dumbest question, remember? Well, I, I realized that I was okay. kind of playing that in here a little okay. bit. But on the other hand, thumbs up to gold medal winner Nathan Chen, who dazzled the nation last night with his performance to the music of Elton John and Yellow Brick Road, Rocket Man, and his finale of Benny and the Jets. Congratulations, Nathan Chen, gold medalist. Well, I'm glad you're watching the Olympics. Not too many other people are, unfortunately. It's kind of a weird, weird deal. It's, you know, it's tough to get into a Winter Olympics when there's no winter in Beijing. There's not even winter there. They have grass. The ski slopes are covered with grass. Yeah, but it's cold, colder than it looks like it. So it's cold. we should be hosting the Winter Olympics right here in Denver, but that's a whole nother topic. Hey, Carl, appreciate it. Good stuff as always. Okay. We'll talk again next week. We'll talk, you know, next week we're going to talk some baseball. All right. All right. All right. You need February. Close to our February. House. It's, it's baseball. It's, it's starting. It. It's starting. We'll talk about that next week. That'll be next okay. week on Canoots and the Commission. Thanks for listening. Join us again.